This is the Manips and Sips podcast show, featuring two fellowship-trained, board-certified orthopedic and sports physical therapists. Join us as we talk all things physical therapy, manual therapy, performance, business, education, research, and of course, Sips. Hey everyone, this is the Nips and Sips podcast show featuring me. I'm Dr. Jeremy Boyd and my usual partner in crime over there, Dr. Brandon Cruz. Today we're going to be talking about anterior knee pain and uh, some things that could be labeled umbrella terms, but uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome, Sinden-Larsen's, uh, patella tendinopathy, and uh, good old Osgood Schlatter's there. But before I get too much into it, Brandon, how's it going? Going well, man. Uh, we are doing a, a nice morning show here again, which I just realized I have coffee again. We got to stop uh, doing these morning shows. What do you have? If you have a beer, I'll I, I do have one. something. All right. My man, I'll, man I'll Justin. Huh? I said, I'll have to go run it and, and go, get one. Yeah, well, I guess I can talk about it. This is uh, Yards, which was one of my favorite breweries. This is from Justin uh, for Friends Gaming. He, he gave me two beers. The other one will be featured on this show. Uh, Long John's. Um, Justin says that. Pretty much every day in the clinic, he's got that South Jersey, um, Philly vibe about him. And he's you know reference references John for just about everything. Uh, it's the uh, perfect word to describe people, places, things. That John over there, uh, going to that John, just yeah, John everything. So um, we always crack up about it, and uh, he hooked me up with it. It's a winter lager from Yards, which is in Philly. Anybody in the Philly area, I highly recommend that brewery. Let's crack this open. So I missed it. What's the official name? What John? Long John's like Kevin Long John. John to the I winter like log yep. lager, but John's is spelled J-A-W-N-S. I yeah, I remember the first time I uh heard the word John. Uh I was an undergrad at Temple, uh, which is the lovely shirt you're repping there. Um, and my roommate at the time was like he was just talking and he kept saying John, John, this John, that John. Uh, you know, and I'm like, and finally, I was like, dude, what are you saying? Um, and he's like, oh, it's a John. He's like, you've never heard that? I was like, no. Um, so then he explained it just like how you do. He's like, it could be anything you want it to be, anyway. <laughs> you know, um, noun, adjective, verb, whatever. Anything. <laughs> so and it makes sense. Like people, you say it to people around, like who aren't familiar with it. And that it just instantly makes sense. He's like, oh, he's talking about, you know, the remote over there. Yeah. Like, look at that pretty John over there. It's like, oh, pretty gal across the street. So that's how I knew it in, in college was like, we were talking about, you know, someone, Girls. you know, attractive, but um, <laughs> that's how it was. But then uh, Justin enlightened me. He's like, no, it's everything. So um, yeah. let me uh, taste this out of my yards cup fitting nice dark beer. He knows, he knows what I like. Oh, that's good. That's that, that is winner in a cup right there. There it is. good i'm gonna give it i'm gonna give it 8.3 oh it's getting up there so now it's getting higher yeah, up there. yeah dark beer i like winter lagers um usually a lot of them are even lighter or like brown lagers so this is more seems like it's more of the porter stout family uh doesn't say the grand details on this, but I'm a fan. Thank you, Justin. Very nice. Um, I went and got a quick uh, Don Q Anejo um, XO just real quick because we're on. Uh, I have coffee here too, so I'll be flipping flopping between the two early okay. morning podcasts. We got to start moving these back here. But next <laughs> week, I got some beers that I want to uh, crack open. You got me some. Uh, as a thank you so i want to break those open i have some from hoboken brewing as well um so i want to uh break those out for the show so next couple shows that we have i'll definitely break those Don't out your most it's been chaotic with all the, the courses and the new offices and we're kind of ramping up and so this this weekend's the last one that we're having for the for the next couple months so after this i kind of get a little breather and get to um line some things up so i will we'll be better for that yeah. um Cool. Got my tea mug here. Cheers. And then uh, my little bullet ice cubes, bullet shaped ice cubes. Really? Yeah, you just stick them in. 
like metal. You just stick them in the holder and they, they freeze over. Freeze over. That's cool. So, uh, yeah, they work out well. Yeah, they don't water it down or anything like that. It's yeah. Cool. Though, actually, sometimes by the end of a drink, I do kind of like the water and, you know, whatever I'm drinking, especially if it's like a, a bourbon or a whiskey. Sometimes it adds a nice little flavor to it. Yeah. And then it hydrates you a little bit, especially if you had a couple too many. Exactly. All right. So we're uh, talking about the umbrella terms. I mean, you named the uh, the big you boys. Named several of them, the f- official names. I'm going to go and say like a syndrome too into that. Yeah. Did you say fat pad too? I did not say fat pad, fat syndrome. pad syndrome, all these kind of umbrella term um, diagnoses. I would say, you know, PFPS, uh, fat pad, plica um, is all umbrella type stuff. You know, obviously the I think the um, I'm blanking out right now. What is that? The the patella tendonitis for um, jumpers knee. Yeah, patella tendinopathy. Osgood Schlatter. There we go. I don't know why I'm blanking out. Osgood Schlatter. They're all similar, you know. Probably, uh, you know, obviously it has more mechanical properties to it and things like that. But I guess we're here to talk about uh, expanding your treatment. You know, getting away from what's been done, uh, you know, treating the diagnosis instead of treating the diagnosis, let's mm-hmm. treat the impairments. Um, you know, when you're hitting that wall and you've done X, Y, and Z for five, eight, 10 sessions, and yeah, maybe that patient got a little better. Maybe they didn't at all, but they're hitting the wall. But, you know, where do we go from, from there? Uh, we have some, uh, you know, articles that we're going to reference that talk about, you know, treating regionally. And then we're also obviously going to bring our joint-based uh, approach to it. And, you know, it's not necessarily pain sciencing the patient and, you know, that much of a, you know, how much is this limiting the patient? Well, what, what can we do to modulate pain mm-hmm. and then do some other things there? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be the, the basis of our show. Jer, how do you, I'll, I'll throw the first question out to you. How do you like to, to see these, especially, I mean, you see uh, more of an athletic population uh, than I do these days, especially with uh, the opening of uh, your second office there. Uh, and Cherry Hill. So a little plug to Jer. Shout out to Jer. Cheers, man. Um, so, yeah, what are you are, are you getting the the super young athletes? I know you're more in the collegiate town, so it's probably past, um, you know, some of those younger uh, diagnoses and you're probably getting more towards the uh, tendonitis and PFPS's, mm-hmm. um, you know, instead of some of the other stuff. No, I think it's a good mix. I mean, for referencing uh headquarters there in glassboro um we do get i think prior bread and butter is most of the high school athletes and we, okay. we do get a good chunk of the, the collegiate athletes um or even younger we have a lot of, you know a decent amount of middle school athletes which you know to build off your point there to try and pain science a 12 year old basketball player there you don't you don't really stand much of a chance they yeah. just want to go back and play but it hurts them to play. So, um, yeah, I mean, we get the, get the gamut of essentially all these diagnoses. And when you really look at it, I mean, I mean, how, how old was either Osgood, Osgood Schlatter and Simon Larson? Like these things were probably made in uh, God knows what decade, um, you know, and that's really how much value do, do those diagnoses really give you? It's like, all right, one's, pain at the inferior pole ones at the tip tube like does that tell you how to treat them um it really doesn't um i get a lot of people that you know say it's like oh it's a self-limiting thing you'll you'll grow out of it um you know take some time off and i think all the, especially the kids almost all of them have taken time off they came back it reoccurred they they're you know some of them are in the points of tears um, and then, and then eventually they come to physical therapy. Um, so, you know, we, you know, we try and, you know, do a multimodal approach, just like everything else that we, we see, we talk about on this show. Uh, I admit, you know, especially, you know, early on in my career, uh, we were always reflective. Yeah. I would treat things, um, you know, locally, uh, treat the diagnosis of patellar tendinopathy or, or anything of that family. I was, probably scraping the patellar tendon doing eye stem, maybe patellar tendon mobilizations, patella mobilizations, 
And then I know there were some research articles when I was younger about eccentric loading to the patellar tendon, uh, which is isometrics. Yep. Um, Yeah, people get a little bit better, but it was like, it'd be good. It was good up until like certain points. And especially when they went back full blast, it would come back, um, you know, and that was the most frustrating thing is like, okay, you know, what else is going on? So now, um, starting from like kind of a top-down approach, um, we do we do things where we're focusing on you know beyond just motor control. Like I used to, that was the other thing. It was just like my mind was fixed that the quad, the whole quad complex, was overworking, and it was mostly due to weak glutes. So I'd go glute city, and you know, but when you really look at it, every freaking teenage kid has weak glutes. Shit, every adult has weak glutes and that sort of thing. I can break them all on MMTs. So once I started realizing that, I'm like, is that really going to help them? And again, I'm sure it helps to some degree, but um, really outcome-wise, it didn't. So taking it a step further, um, doing some things to modulate things outside of just, you know, working the patellar tendon. So we do spinal manipulations, a lot of them, uh, going into things with ACLs who you know, anybody's treat ACLs for a lot, most of them, you know, in that kind of mid stages, you know, that three, four months are starting to ramp things up, get back into running. They start to get some, whether it's patellofemoral pain or jumper's knee or any of these other things that we mentioned, um, you know, and you have to kind of treat that and it's not the ACL in this case. So doing some things outside of that, um, and we'll do some lumbar manipulations. I do, I think I do lumbar manipulations on all my ACLs um, and all these type of patients. And we'll talk about some research that backs that up. Um, the femoral nerve that courses uh, through that area. So that's something else I see a big, uh, you know, that's a big game changer for a lot of them versus the classic, let me just, you know, stretch out my rec fem, more doing flossing and combining that with lumbar mobilizations. Uh, I think has been really beneficial. And then, yeah, I'll still do some things in that area. Um, and I kind of do it from a, let's see if I can make a symptom modification sort of uh, way versus let me just do it to treat those tissues. So I do it like, all right, let me play around with the fat pad because the fat pad's there to tell our tenant. Now I'm doing stuff of like, let me do a medial glide to the tibia as they're doing a step down and see if that's relieving them um mm. or you know a patella glide a medial patella glide during a squat and see if that helps them if that helps them then i'm moving it um and so and i'll still do some of the what research supports in those eccentric isometric loading so i'm not giving that up and then transitioning mm. to plyometrics and something i missed especially while i was younger was the ankle uh, a lot of that you know you know lack of that weight-bearing dorsiflexion in a lot of these kids or anybody uh, can lead to a little bit more stress and strain in that anterior compartment of the knee. So um, make sure we're, you know, doing our due diligence and treating the ankle as well. So if I really look at it um, from a manual therapy route and or treatment route, I'm probably doing more techniques at like the thoracolumbar junction and the ankle that I'm doing at the actual knee. Um, sometimes the hip, I probably don't see the hip as much. Like I don't see as, do as much at the hip. It's yeah. still there, especially I would say like anterior glides of the, of, of the hip. But uh, it's probably, again, it's probably back, ankle, hip and knee, kind of pretty tied. But um and then integrating any education, that sort of stuff. But what about you, Brandon? Well, before I jump into that, I got the answer. Well, the answer via Google um, about when Osgood Schlatter's was created. Oh, it was oh. in 1903 by uh, Robert Osgood, a U.S. orthopedic surgeon, um, and Carl Schlatter, a Swiss surgeon, concurrently described the disease that now bears the name that it is, um, right? And it's uh, common in patients who are active adolescents, right? So, yeah, uh, like you said, players, you know, volleyball players, yeah, yeah, you know, jumpers, and not to say that there's um, 
there, there's probably some type of mechanical or biomechanical changes or, or biochemical, I should say, uh, changes to maybe some of the structures um, in there. And I think that goes to, like you said, addressing some of the movement mechanics or deficiencies. And yeah, maybe that is by attacking the glutes um, or like you said, having them do a functional exercise and maybe tweaking something, adjusting their form, maybe adding a trunk lead. So they're loading the hips more. Uh, maybe it's by manipulating their, um, or cueing their tibia, or maybe they're lacking dorsiflexion. So now more forces are going through that knee than there should be, uh, you know, a ton of things there, but, um, you know, just trying to offload or strengthen these patients and having them squat more, um, is typically not the thing, especially if they're younger. I, I mean, they're, they're active enough as it is. So why are we just going to nail Huge them point. with more exercises? I, I never, <laughs> never got that, you know, same thing with, um, Achilles type stuff. Like if it's an overuse injury, why are we just going to use them some more? Right. It's usually like what they say is like eccentric loading to yeah. it, which is like, painful in itself on a normal yeah. basis. Like take your normal workout and just do eccentrics of it. You're going to be hurt like a ton after that. And now you're taking some brain pain and, you know, hammer the same muscles that they use every day in their sport, but yeah. go for it. I thought that was a huge point there. Yeah. And it's not to say that you can't do eccentrics and you can't do isometrics, which yes, there's some research that supports that as well. Obviously it's included uh, in our planet of care as well, but you know, especially for all the, um, the, the movement people who like the squad and her hands off, um, uh, speaking of hands off, Minkin had his post the other day saying he's hands off, but not hands off or whatever. I don't know if you saw it. I got, no, I didn't see it. Yeah. yeah uh, I found it very, um, actually a student showed it to me. Uh, let me see if I can just pull it up. Pro hands on. Here we go. This post. Everyone can see. Mm. Everyone's going to think we're trollers. Eh, maybe a little bit. Um, but yeah, um, why you can be anti-manual therapy, but bro hands on. I mean, come on, dude. Um, anyway, I digress. So how do we modulate pain? You know, the, the one thing that research does support for manual therapy, if nothing else, is it's like probably the best way to modulate pain. Um, so why aren't we, and you talked about manipulating the back, manipulating the back or hip is going to help the descending pathways to inhibit pain. Um, it's going to help for quad activation. I'll let you talk about what articles those are in a second. Uh, how about mobilizing the patella? You know, if especially people who are in pain, they're going to be tight, they're guarded, especially for some of these um, diagnoses. Well, what if we mobilize the patella or the tibia or the tibia femoral joints and get some, um, one, some de-inhibition, decrease some of that tone, decrease some of that pain, allow things to glide and slide and move a little better. Um, maybe they're lacking a degree of extension that, yeah, we can't pick up on um, with our goniometers, right? Maybe there's something that's a little off, which the person will just tell you if you mobilize it and you test, retest it, they feel better. They feels normal. Maybe you're even outside the box mobilizations and you hinted on it, a tibial rotary mobilization, Right. There is some rotation that should occur at the tibial femoral joint. We're so conditioned to um, flexion and extension, but it actually has a, it's a triplanar joint. I mean, there should be some valgus and varus, obviously not too much. There should be some rotation. Obviously we don't want too much. We're going to get ACL tears, but you know, that is going to impact, you know, if you look at the Arthur kinematics and the biomechanical aspect of things, it impacts it the way it moves. Um, so from that standpoint, it works. And then you mentioned nerve glides, like what causes pain? What main structure in our body is what sends signals between the brain? You know, we talk about, you know, pain sciencing them, right? Pain is an out product or output of the brain. That's going to go through your spinal cord into your nerves. Well, what if we do some nerve flossing and alter that mechanosensitivity, biochemicals that are in there, even the, the biomechanics of the nerve um, and the properties. Can we help decrease that pain, make that window of opportunity so you can do your isometrics and then your eccentrics and then your movement re-education. So now it's a more comprehensive um, uh, pro, uh, plan of care. Sorry. So, but um, before... 
I mean, we're on the fact of, of Osgood slaughters and manipulating and manual therapy. If you could go into those articles, Jer, but then I want to move into probably, you know, some of the other uh, umbrella diagnoses as well. And, and some of the just really misconceptions and, and myths that hopefully we can help debunk and just open up our audience's eyes to maybe treating um, or adding treatment to what they already do. All right. So first one, being, um, love me my ACE. Which one am I sharing right now? Uh, this is the uh, ISJ, IJSPT okay. um, ACL reconstruction anterior. Right. That's what I hit, but the, it showed up the other two that I'm looking at. So, um, well, you're it, sharing on the screen to everybody. Yeah. Um, okay. I just want to make sure I was on the right one. But uh, so the, the article is named Lumbar Manipulation Exercise in the Management of Anterior Knee Pain and Diminished Quadriceps Activation Following ACL Reconstruction. Uh, case report. Yes, it's a case report. I know you research purists will be like, it's not a meta-analysis or systematic review. Um, you guys know our points on this. You can get a lot of value out of these sort of things. And unfortunately, let's face it, how many people are considering a lumbar manipulation for people with ACLs um, to do enough research to even hopefully even get randomized control studies? So um, we do find that there's a lot of value into these. Uh, long story short, um, you know, if you just want to go into, I don't want to go too much into it, sideline rotational lumbar thrust mobile manipulation may be beneficial. Um, they showed improved uh quad activation in their handheld diometry. There's also been uh, stuff in um, isokinetic uh, labs as well. Uh, to top this off, AOMP did a great podcast with uh, Dr. Ruggieri. Ruggieri. I could be butchering that last name. So yeah, sorry I, can, if, I can never if, say. I know you're talking about. Uh, and they did a case study uh, on a patient at uh, AMI, arthrogenic muscle inhibition of the quad, which is common after ACLs. And they wanted to see what was eliciting the best quad uh, activation uh, with their uh, testing, uh, which I believe is handheld diometry. Uh, I could be wrong with that as well, but they compared uh, with a patient NMES and then three exercises for one week. They did uh, lumbar manipulation and then same three exercises. And then also, um, uh, I want to say it was a tibiofemoral post, posterior mobilization. I could be wrong on that, but it was a local knee joint mobilization. Found all of them stimulated the quads. Beside NMES actually resulted in earlier fatigue of the quads. You got to think you're doing it for minutes on end. Uh, but the lumbar manipulation, the most was a the local, but you know, in that case, and what they're suggesting, I agree with. Why not combine them? Why not combine all three? Why not just quick manip, do a local mobilization, and then NMES to that? How many individuals do we get that get AMI because we're just doing you know, one faceted thing, just exercise or NMES, because that's what we've been doing for so many years? Uh, so that was a, you know, a really, really cool thing that they kind of broke it down and tested it week by week. Um, and other studies, oh, let's see, stop share. Also, I'm going to say, while you look for the next article, NMES, I mean, how about doing NMES outside the box? And I haven't done this in uh, quite uh, some time now. It's just I just kind of moved away from NMES as a whole. But um, early on in my career, I would play around with it. And instead of just doing NMES for quad sets or straight leg raises, I would have people do like TRX squats and have like an ISO hold for that ramp up time of five or 10 seconds and then have them, you know, and it's a portable stim machine. So you yeah. put it in their pocket or whatever and, you know, have them do it that way or a TKE weight bearing mm -hmm. TKE or a lunge. Like if you want to do that, you know, what about maybe something a little higher level mm -hmm. and granted there's the argument of um, not, you know, once they get to that point where they can actively, stimulate their quad maybe you should move them off it but if you're just doing it in conjunction you're not there's no negative side to it it's only positive and yeah that's just kind of playing around i remember doing it with a low trap i think it was low trap mid trap activation um with somebody doing a pull-up i mm. did that and then they had to do like an isometric hold at the top of the pull-up 
Um, I think it was a CrossFit I was working on who, who did that. But just kind of, you know, playing around with some stuff and, and not always being just so basic um, with what we do. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously we always preach about, you know, pushing the envelope, challenging mm-hmm. the status quo, um, you know, uh, layering or evolving what has been done. If, if you know, one aspect is uh, shown to be effective, why not try, you know, the, the next progression or two beyond that and see see what happens? Yeah, no, I, I love that. I um, mean, I think most of the, especially in the ACL realm with NMES is like, was it, you know, 40, 90 to 40 degrees and that sort of stuff. I remember my CI was just like, that's not where they need their, that's not where they have their issue with their quad strength. Um, it's usually that, you know, terminal knee extension, as you said, or a weight bearing squat and everything like that. So um, I always have students that come in like, why aren't you doing the, you know, the classic, classic 90 to 40 degrees. I'm like, well, that's not their issue. I can see them do a long arc quad LAQ with relative ease, but those last five degrees of terminal knee extension, they can't do. So yeah, so there's going to be some carryover, but it's not going to, what they need to do is train the positions that they're having the most difficulty in. But yeah, Brandon, you look like you had a. Yeah. Yeah. Last five degrees of terminal knee extension. I mean, you're the ACL study here, but, um, what do we learn in biomechanics class or kinesiology class? Um, what, you know, screw home mechanism last five degrees. Right. And that requires some rotation or movement of that tibia. And if they're lacking it, you know, are, you know, can we, should we do our mobilizations to that um, to open that window up, getting it glide a little better. And guess what? Your goniometer is not going to pick that up. Mm-hmm. Right. Our, our standard, right. So we're going to miss things that, because we're biasing ourselves basically against it but if you just go in there and do you know five oscillations 10 oscillations and it doesn't take that long Mm -hmm. um to do some of these interventions you know even if you're anti-manual therapy you don't want to do it doing a lumbar manipulation takes five seconds you're telling me in an hour you can't spare five seconds Mm -hmm. to, to do it mobilization maybe takes two or three minutes you know and then you're moving on. I'm not saying there do it forever, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the main thing. I mean, we're always, you know, you're talking about productivity standards and like, oh, I got too much, you know, people and that sort of stuff. It really doesn't take too long to do these. If you're efficient with your treatment, yeah, you should you should be able to see and manage, you know, two or three an hour. Mm-hmm. But um, on the other research studies, there was a CPR. Um, for and I think we talked about that in the previous podcast, so I'm not going to get too much in the weeds of it. Doing lumbopelvic manipulation with, uh, with people with a patellofemoral pain syndrome uh, wasn't validated um, for in this and everything like that, but they did find differences in hip extension, hip abduction strength. And again, we've talked about that on the show. Is it's like I remember going through them like the whole thing of all the clamshells, all the bridges, changing up things uh shit i feel so bad for all the people that probably borderline embarrassed by slapping nmes on their on their glutes trying to get that to fire um and then look at you know let me test you know doing a manipulation or doing hip extension mobilizations and then trying to fire fire up those glutes so um you know we're always trying to you know as what you said before you know sports strengthens us like you know, you cutting, you pivoting, you bal- battling a defender, such and so forth. So if you don't think your muscles aren't firing during that, you're out of your mind. Um, something else, you know, is maybe contributing to not as much activation. It's probably not just exercise because you're exercising enough. But um, let me see. There's probably, I think there's one more, right? One more. Yeah, the Iverson one. Maybe I have that one. You, I think you have it. Oops. I don't know what I can see and can't see. So, so this is the uh, effects of uh, lumbopelvic joint manipulation on quadriceps mm-hmm. activation in healthy individuals. So now we're taking away any type of pathology um, or hopefully taking away any type of pathology. Uh, real quick, you know, and for people at home, uh, that's the uh, it's by Grinstaff effects of lumbar joint manipulation on quad activation on strength and healthy individuals. Um, 
but uh, you know, we, you know, just taking a look at that, can we extrapolate this and apply it to, you know, people with pain or injury? Um, you know, that group, the group that received a lumbo pelvic joint manipulation demonstrating significant increase in quad activation by 3% uh, force by 3% activation by five. Um, so that doesn't seem like much, um, but in the game where I say, especially like ACLs and that sort of stuff, that's a game of not inches. We're talking about a game of like centimeters, oh, man, uh, yeah. little things can prevent, you know, further issues. All right. I don't get that quad going. I don't get that full extension knees bent during walking pisses off the joint flares it up even more. So joint gets stiff. They're going in for a manipulation under anesthesia or they're developing a cyclops lesion. I fir firmly believe most cyclops lesions are more a didn't do enough in the appropriate amount of time versus, you know, just bad luck. Um, so, um, you know, having these in our tool bag, it can really prevent further issues. Um, but I think that's the, uh, last of the, of that research there. And you may have one more, right? Yeah. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, when you were talking about the Crowell article, um, and you know, sometimes how early on in your career, you went to the glutes for anterior knee pain, which, you know, um, what's his name has a, a decent amount of research on that. Um, oh, I'm blanking. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to who actually was, but, um, you know, even if you do subscribe to, you know, the traction and train theory and the glutes are, are kind of what stabilizes the femur and things like that, that's totally fine. That there's obviously truth to that. Um, and for some people that's true, but if we're looking at you wanting to treat the glutes or proximally, we just showed you two articles that talk about, uh, increased activation um, of the hips or quads via manipulation of the low back and hip. So why not prep your patient with that, open up that neurophysiological window, now hit them with your glute stuff, bridges, clamshells, hip thrusters, lunges, deadlifts, whatever the case may be. But again, laying your treatment and stop biasing yourself against uh, everything. I, you know, we, I, I've mentioned this, I believe before, I definitely mentioned in our courses, um, you know, and I, I'm definitely our mentorship, Evidence-based practice isn't reading a, an article and following it to a T. Like it's reading multiple articles and finding where, where and how to link them together, what parts overlap, what parts don't overlap. Um, you know, one study looks at one thing, another study looks at another thing that is relatable. Can you bridge that gap via what we know about neuroanatomy, neuroscience, you know, biomechanics, et cetera? Uh, and not just, oh, well, this article said this, or this article didn't say this and didn't support it. And, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but trying to overlap the, the, the things that I've said, the more times I've tried to be, especially early in my career, learn everything, learn every different theory out there. The more I kind of realize, hey, there's a lot of overlapping and similarities here and, you know, take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Um, you know, and like we said, regional interdependence, multimodal approach. Uh, hitting things from multiple angles. Uh, you know, we're the human person, the human brain, the human body is very complex. Um, so oftentimes hitting it, and this is not hitting with a shotgun approach, totally different, um, where you're just throwing a bunch of stuff to see what sticks. Um, but hitting it from sound rationale, looking at the impairments and hitting it from multiple different angles, um, you know, is going to be more beneficial, mm -hmm. more beneficial than not. Uh, let me pull up and see if I have it here. This Iverson article. Here I think we go. Building off that, just understanding and knowing all the things that oh. can potentially modulate and change tissues, like, you know, can make an impact. Like, all right, you may not find any impairments in someone with a low back, uh, with a, with patellofemoral pain syndrome or any of these knee sort of things. They may be able bend forward, go over, you may even get in the knitting gritty and start doing, um, you know, start doing UPAs, nothing's bothering them and all that sort of stuff, but their knee bothers them. What's the harm in doing a quick technique and seeing if it can affect something down into the chain? It's just understanding and knowing um, that, you know, all these things can, can impact that and that can give a patient confidence. We know manual therapy is mostly short-term, um, the effects of it, 
So, but that confidence that gives an athlete or, you know, a non-athlete that, wow, you know, they hit something further away and my knee's fine. You know, maybe all that stuff that the physician said about my joint being degenerated isn't necessarily all the true because now after, you know, five minutes, my knee feels that much better. And he even touched my knee or she. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, yeah. So Jerry, you, you have now all good. You have the, uh, the privilege. Uh, I just sent you the article. Oh. If you just pop that open yeah, yeah, and I'll talk yeah. about it. Well, yours, big dog. Yeah. So uh, again, this is another one. Don't believe this was uh, validated, but that's okay. A lot of things aren't people out so, there. Some things, um, you know, just because, you know, the factors that they looked at didn't end up being what they, they were. I mean, it could be, you know, a sample size issue. It could be maybe they looked at the wrong factors. Um, but these are things we need to be considering. Um, you know, basically what CPR is trying to do is try and develop subgroups of patients who were, who are more likely to respond to an intervention than not. All right. So if we're looking at that, I mean, our clinical prediction or predictors in this article, they looked at uh, five here difference in hip IR greater than 14 degrees, uh, ankle dorsiflexion less than, or greater than 16 degrees, navicular drop, um, greater than, uh, or I'm sorry, less than, um, let me backpedal, uh, ankle dorsiflexion, um, greater than 16, navicular drop greater than three millimeters, no stiffness with sitting greater than 30 minutes and squatting is the most painful activity, right? So if they have three or f uh, three of the five present or more, uh, they have a high likelihood ratio, 18.4. So anything over 10 is what we're looking for uh, of responding uh, to this. If they have four or more, they have a hundred percent chance of success. I mean, this is based off uh, some of the numbers. Now, granted, it wasn't validated, but you know, especially if you're hitting a wall with some of your patients or they're just not responding well, give it a shot, see where it works. I've had this work like a charm to some patients and it's like, wow, this shit works. And I've had other patients where it didn't work as well or it didn't work at all. Okay, that patient, I'm not going to continue doing it on. Another patient, I will. So you're not going to understand that or see that unless you're trying some of these things and you're using, utilizing the evidence what the best of what we have to your best of your ability and trying to apply it to, you know, the case in front of you. And that's, that's what we want. That's evidence-based practice. That's operating at a higher level uh, clinically and reasoning wise, instead of trying to treat by diagnosis, we're treating by impairments. Um, all those things I, I mentioned are impairments, they're asterisk signs, right? Um, instead of, I, I hear so many clinicians, oh, I have this diagnosis. I do this, this, this. So it's like a protocol or what would you do for this diagnosis? Well, you know, evaluate the patient first <laughs> and find out what's limiting them because that main driver may be different for, you know, a various patient. Yeah. So, yeah. I think I that, that's uh, I get that on the phone a lot from parents too. They're yeah. like, how long is this going to take? How many visits and this and that, you know, well, it really depends on once I, once I see them and I don't make that call until I do my manual therapy. I get someone in, I got a patient who it was a deltoid ligament sprain, a bone bruise, um, with CMPT, FI training, everything like that. And with one mobilization, the one meal glide and weight bearing symptoms were completely eliminated. Um, I did some icing on the cake stuff. Sure. Great. So at that point, I'm like, if your symptoms are completely eliminated right now, you can run, you can cut and no problems. I don't need to see you a ton. Um, so, I, you know, try not to pigeonhole yourself. Well, I have to do X, Y, Z. I have to see them X, Y, Z many times and that sort of yeah. stuff. Um, I mean, I would say at, at a certain level um, with a certain amount of experience, you can kind of ballpark what you, you know, because you've probably had enough. Uh, patients where you could say, well, they typically get better in, you know, five to eight visits, uh, this varies person to person, uh, I'll know better once I treat them or evaluate them and see how they respond to what, what I do initially, I can give you a better, better timeline. But, you know, I think after, you know, if you're at a certain skill level and you have a certain amount of years and reps underneath you, you should be able to kind of ballpark it. Um, you know, another thing I tell my patients too, 
is they might not be better a hundred percent in you know three visits, but I tell them you should we should know if what I'm doing you're responding to within three to five sessions. Some most of the time it's less, That's but sweet, yeah. you know, you never know um what's going on. So uh you know, if you're not making a change within three to five sessions, you need to reflect on what you're doing. Even if you are making a change in three to five sessions, you should still be reflecting mm-hmm. um, and seeing, you know, what's working, what's not working, where you need to, to pivot and change to um, as well. But, you know, if you, you say, typically this is what I do and that's not being a salesman, it's, it's being, you know, confident in your ability to treat and get this person better in X amount of visits. Unlike an ACL post-op. Well, you know, that's going to be, three, six, nine months by three months, they should be running three to four months. Like if you can educate to your patient, well, on this, typically they're able to do this and this by this timeline, this and this, by the next timeline, you know, it goes a long way. And, um, and, you know, just communicating and educating mm-hmm. your patient and instilling confidence, um, in you as a provider and what you can do for them. Yeah, I think uh, setting up expectations is super helpful for people. Um, And then goes into the confidence the patient has in you after you explain these things. So um, I wholeheartedly agree. I I usually tell patients, I'm like, you should, most people know, I would say, and you can agree or disagree with me, most patients know by the end of the first session, whether this is, this is it, you know, this is, it may not be obviously that first session, we're not God here, but um, where they know like we're doing something that eventually will lead me to the right path yeah. or get me to my goals and that sort of stuff. But yeah. I've had plenty of patients, I'm sure you have, where they go to you know a few other places, they're there for six, eight weeks, not making any progress. And you know, you do X, Y, or Z in the first session, and like I've done more in one session than you know, or I feel more accomplished in one session than than you know, eight weeks over there. Yep. Um, and that's, that's a feeling, you know, the patient is feeling that way and it goes beyond, you know, people skills and being nice to them. Yeah. That adds to it. And we're not saying those softer skills need to be ignored, um, or should be ignored, but you know, there's a difference when you do, you know, quality therapy and interventions, they should have some type of change, um, within that first session. I'm looking for a change in that first session. Oh yeah. So, Well, any other uh, nuggets about the anterior knee there, Brandon? In your yeah, experience? I, I would say if you want your uh, your cookbook, um, get away from massage, get away from all that stuff and make your cookbook. I'm going to manip this patient's back, hip, mobilize their knee or patella, and then I'm going to do, you know, the isometrics and whatever other movement stuff you need to do, but like you want a cookbook, that stuff should be in your cookbook, not a bunch of soft tissue stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I'm I'm updating our spinal manip course now with some um, some literature, and you know, mobilization and manipulations have an effect on the muscle spindle and therefore the H reflex, um, and the and massage doesn't. So you know, we're talking about neurophysiologically uh, or neurophysiological effects as well as pain modulation. Well, the research is showing mobs and manips have that massage doesn't, especially at the, the mechanoreceptors, proprioceptor level. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not talking about just mashing an area and you're altering the, the pain gate cycle theory or whatever that is, but I don't even follow anymore. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, again, just kind of really uh, open yourself up to more interventions. Uh, um, and also throwing the, we say it back and it's not just the lumbar spine, you know, especially for knees, you know, even look higher. Yeah. You know, spine. I found some real weird stuff up in the T-spine that, have, you know, either referred or, you know, painful on the involved side and done T-spine manipulations if it made an impact. Hell, I've had an ACL, uh, honest to God where I've done a cervical manipulation and alleviate their posterior knee pain, a cervical manipulation, a standard up glide. Um, so, you know, you know, keep, keep your, uh, keep your doors open, windows open, mind open, all that sort of stuff. So especially yeah, things. those things where it's like, usually, you know, especially maybe those longer cases and everything like that, as soon, 
just asked me once, like, when do you just chalk it up to like them being like, that's part of the process. And I'm like, yeah, longer things, Tommy John, ACLs and that sort of stuff. They're going to go through their waves. But as long as you come in my door, I'm going to try and make things better. But yeah, maybe there's some soreness or experiencing, you know, different capacity loads and stuff like that. But it's like session two, you know, session three. And if I'm blowing things off to session three, shame on me, but uh, I'm going to look to make that better. Again, more from a psychological confidence standpoint, but it's also helping me to become a better clinician. All right. So maybe I figured that out, you know, for a six month post-op ACL and, you know, three sessions of them complaining about it. Now I'm going to hear it for the next one. And I'm addressing that right there and then um, and making it all the better for them. So, yeah. So just keep your ears and mind open there. That's sure. Uh, I have actually three three points to that. One was to add on to your TL junction um, comment earlier, you know, treating the TL junction. And I thought of your case report that you had where you treated the TL junction and you did the lateral cutaneous uh, nerve glide and it cleared up their thigh pain. Uh, well, pain inhibits muscle activation and strength while they're not going to have be as strong in their quads and not going to be able to perform their lips, uh, lifts. Uh, if this is an, uh, a cutting athlete, this may lead to or be a precursor to um, an ACL injury or meniscal injury or something because that quad is delayed in firing. Um, yes, can we 100% prove all this? No, but we know certain things happen in pain and activation and limited. Like, you know, we, we can't do a study on, oh, every person with low back pain, do they have an ACL tear? I, I mean, I, I don't think that study has been done, but that's hard to prove. Jeremy, I'll let you talk before I go Quick on my other thing. Because it looks like you have the some last stuff. like four ACL tears. I want to say all of them have had an episode of low back pain prior to their ACL, like recently prior, not like years before. And or on top of that, we're talking about some other stuff. Guaranteed ankle sprain. It's one or the two. Um, you know start asking those questions of your ACLs, but he made, brand made a huge point there. And I had to ask like patients that, and that stuff that you get for like total knee replacements, ACLs, and like, oh, my back starts to hurt. Oh, it's from straightening. And you're like, oh, it's compensations. No, it's not freaking compensations. That back stuff was there prior to, and you know, it's getting cooked up. Treat the damn back, treat the ankle, do whatever you have to do. But go ahead. Yeah, uh, going off on some tangents now, some bunny trails. I have a runner who had some uh, hip and knee pain, and it's because they're arching the low back. They have no thoracic rotation or extension, all right? So they're getting all this stuff down the chain because they just can't move the their thoracic. And, you know, they're over here foam rolling their IT band, and they bought Air Relax or Normatech boots, and they bought the Theragun. And they're just bruising the shit out of themselves up and not making any progress. I mean, what's that? Normatech's like, what, two grand? Uh, Hypervolt's 500. Um, you know, foam roll is, what, 20 bucks, whatever. But that's, you know, $2,500 yeah. on self-care. It's not even working because uh, you're addressing the wrong things. Uh, story. Actually, I had a patient right before Thanksgiving came in with uh, pain over the SIJ region, TL junction region stiff as can be from T-spine down. So of course, I'm going to address the low-hanging fruit. Um, I clean that stuff up, trying to address that. The patient got like 40, 50% better with that stuff, but she was like, it's still there. Her extension still looked wonky. Um, Like it was improved, but she was avoiding something. And then we're talking. I'm like, all right, what else happened? What's happened? So she's like, well, I got hit in the head with a two by four. It fell on me. Like she was walking through a doorway and it clunked. I'm like, all right, well, you should have told me about this before, but whatever. I clear out the neck. I spend, you know, five minutes mobilizing the whole neck down CT junction, retester goes from 40 to 50% better to 80 to 90% better right there. And her extension cleared up. And then at that point it was just like, yeah, it's a little residual. I'm like, all right, let's see if that clears up in a day. I actually should follow up with her, but um, you know, not taking that 40%, which is still pretty good in the session. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, there's something else. Let's look up the chain. I personally had one where my T-spine on my left side was, was cranky. It felt like every time I rotate, like a, a rib just wanted to like snap. Like it just like you put any more pressure, this thing's going to break. Obviously it's not going to, I'm young, healthy. I don't have osteoporosis, right? Just felt that way. Are you really young? 
I'm, young, I'm young. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> in the osteoporosis realm, there, pal. I can't wait till I smoke you in basketball. But anyway, um, so young-ish, right? young-ish, so, young-ish. Um, continue. So we're treating the T-spine. I'm doing some flossing. It's just not going away. And I'm like, just treat my neck. Like it's been a little cranky. Treat my my neck. Treat my upper neck uh, in rotation. And then did that, and it just gone. Um, you know, so. Like you, Jeremy said, open up your mind. Uh, don't limit yourself. Look regionally, right? PT schools uh, taught treat above the joint above and below. Like go two, three, four joints above below, or segments, or regions, whatever you know terminology you want to use. Um, I had somebody. I mean, we're going away from the shoulder, or we're going away from the knee case. Uh, Some more anterior shoulder pain. I had to mobilize T10, and for some reason that got their their pain dissolved. Uh, I don't know. I can't explain it, but clearly something mechanically or whatever, neurophysiologically was cleared up with that. But mm-hmm. all right, we're going off too many buddy yeah, trails. Save this for, for another, another uh, podcast. Day. But um, awesome stuff. Hopefully everyone uh, got some nuggets of knowledge, you know, test some other things out uh, versus just train locally. And um, yeah, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, any points where you want to build off of, if you want those articles, feel free to message us um, and we'll send them over to you. Brendan, any last uh, thoughts or announcements? No, not, not uh, for today. I think we're all set, man. All right, cool. Well, we're off and uh, cheers, everyone. Cheers. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Nips and Sips. If you liked what you listened to, please follow and subscribe to us on all major social media and podcast platforms. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the show. Interested in one of our courses? Go to www.iosmt.com. Interested in business and private practice mentorship and advice? Visit us at therehabcoaches.com. As always, feel free to reach out to us If you have any questions or recommendations, whether that be clinical or SIPs, at Manips and SIPs, at The Decent Doctor, and at Think Like a Fellow. Thanks for tuning in, and cheers, everyone.